Brother John? Yes, sir. The issue of inerrancy isn't a new issue. Evangelicals declared that it was settled in 1978, and you decided to go to all this trouble and hold a conference about it in the year 2015. <laughs> Something happened. And uh, I would like to give you the opportunity to state just as clearly as you will always speak as to why you did this thing. You know, this really started in your office uh, when we had a meeting a year ago, January, and uh, oh. you're a good man. Thank you. This started in your office a year ago, January. Um, we were all together. You were on, you were on the phone because you just had a new baby in your home. But we were all together, and you, I was sitting next to Ligon, and um, you guys were talking about inerrancy as an issue. And I think you were responding to the Zonervan book, Five Views on Inerrancy. We all know there aren't five views. It's either inerrant or not. Uh, right? And you guys were so exercised by this that um, you, you were thinking about recapturing or adding to or developing this issue again. And, um, I mean, it struck me as a reality, uh, not just because of that book, but because the climate had allowed that book to exist. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of ruffling as a result of that book. Um, and I thought, there is also a whole generation of young guys who have gone out and started churches, many of whom don't have adequate theological training, um, who wouldn't be able to fight this battle if it, was, if it was drawn up in their realm. And that we needed to, we needed to reaffirm why we must have an inerrant text. And uh, I also remember coming back and thinking, it isn't that people deny the inerrancy of Scripture, it's just that it seems irrelevant. It's, it's like it doesn't have a place in the seeker-driven kind of pragmatic churches that seem to be flourishing today. I mean, who really cares? You just flash a verse on a screen from whatever choice you of translation. I just thought, you know, here's a whole generation who haven't fought this battle, and this is the greatest battle of all battles. And um, couldn't we bring together uh, some of the finest minds in evangelicalism, and wouldn't we, all, wouldn't we find the best of the best who would stand on this issue? And we just began to say, okay, Lord, how would we do this? And this is the, the end of that planning, praying. Well, there will be other opportunities for this, but on behalf of us all, thank you for doing this. No, thank you. Thank you. Athanasius, after the Council of Nicaea, wrote a letter in which he said, therefore the issue is settled. It didn't stay settled. So, Mark, is that the way this works? that in every generation a theological issue like this seems to be a recurring issue, especially in the, in the modern age with the, uh, the pressures upon the doctrine of revelation on Scripture? It, it definitely is. I think some issues are more particular. So the idea of the openness of God was a raging debate, does God know the future, 10 years ago. It's not a raging debate right now. It's not, there's no discussion on it. This one is one of those perennial ones, though, because Satan says, did God really say... So I think we can expect that this is a battle that every generation faces in different ways. At the Reformation, uh, you know, the, 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 the material, uh, rather the formal principle of the sufficiency of Scripture is predicated upon, is the Bible true? Is it completely true? Is it entirely trustworthy? So yes, this is something that I don't care how young you are here, and if the Lord tarries a long time, you will face this now, and you will face this again. What I've tried to think through in terms of this session are questions that I believe would be asked or ought to be asked, especially by pastors who would be here. And I think a lot of younger guys don't know that there's a pedigree to this. And, of course, we could go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, we could certainly go back to the uh, 18th and 19th centuries and the Enlightenment. Hey, I believe in the Garden of Eden now. I do, too. Okay. <laughs> so must we all. Just trying to be clear. Um, but we can't go back and trace it quite that far. I do want to go back to 30-plus uh, years ago when you and I... Uh, we're looking at a manuscript from 1966 in Winnem, Massachusetts. A little-known event in evangelical history, 
when a group of evangelicals in 1966 tried to head off the inerrancy controversy. They met at Gordon College, mm-hmm. kind of quietly. You Very quietly. You weren't part of that. I was very young. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were pastoring this church in a no, year that's or two. That's true. All right. Uh, <laughs> no, I hadn't Actually, he wasn't yet. He was three years away so, from being okay. pastor. Yeah. All right. Well, close. No. Um, yeah, Al, so you're setting this up. Keep so, yeah. swimming. No, please, brother. So, so yeah, this was an important meeting, and yeah, go ahead. And, and what happened, as Carl Henry said later, is that no one affirmed the errancy of Scripture, but the majority would not affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. Then, ten years later, Harold, Harold Lenzel wrote a book, or it was published then, entitled The Battle for the Bible, in which he named names and uh, went institution by institution and, uh, and, and figure by figure, denomination by denomination, showing the slippage on this issue. And uh, the reason I want to throw this back to you is because evangelicals did their best not to address this issue, certainly the leaders, until they simply had to. And a group of very courageous men came together. And, uh, John, you were there then uh, in Chicago in 1978 for the uh, International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. I don't think we should assume that the people in this room understand what happened there and why. I agree. there uh, There was not an institution you could name almost. Uh, that had in a previous generation been known as the evangelical school, Fuller Seminary, would be the prime example, uh, where the authority of Scripture was defended, which by the 1960s and certainly into 1978, by the time the International Council first meets, had not seriously and sometimes publicly compromised on that issue. And therefore, evangelicals were confused, uh, even in our lifetime, because I'm just, I'm in college then, so I'm not really... I read the ICBI when it was published in the, um, the Themelios journal. I read it, loved it, uh, was thankful for it. I was a recent convert from agnosticism to Christianity. I was a religion major at Duke University. And what the ICBI said was not what I was being taught at Duke, um, but it was very much what I thought was true. And uh, I was glad that there were a bunch of you know, gray beards and brilliant guys around who said, yes, this is the truth about the Bible. And it functioned as a rallying cry, but I think as I got a little more mature looking back on it through the 80s, I went to Gordon-Conwell and then on, uh, it was probably more shocking to me all those who wouldn't affirm it. Even people who we would think are in some ways our evangelical brothers and sisters, but they would not want to affirm an heresy. And it was even more that way in the UK. Well, it kind of gets back to what John said. They didn't exactly at that time, at least most of them, want to affirm its opposite. They just were not willing to affirm inerrancy. Or they said, it's, uh, it's not where the lines need to be drawn. Yeah. Well, and you had some time where you were trying to sort out, is that the right word to use about Scripture? Well, in the midst of a denomination that was uh, fighting a civil war yeah. over the question and yeah. thankfully settled the issue for inerrancy. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, th- th- I think there were, uh, there were millions of evangelicals and certainly uh, Southern Baptists trying to find out, is that what we have to say about the Bible? Yeah. Winston Churchill once said that Americans can be counted on doing the right thing after everything else has been tried. <laughs> And uh, that, that's kind of what happened to the SBC in the 1980s, but we'll get to that. Yeah, just a footnote to that. <clears throat> it's in the 70s. Um, I'm here, Fuller Seminaries in Pasadena. Jack Rogers comes out with a book. He's a faculty member at Fuller that just assaults the doctrine of inerrancy, but, but doesn't admit to that. It, it, it try. It, it falsifies a doctrine of inerrancy. Um, just, just a footnote. This is called the Rogers McKim thesis, and it's the idea that it was created at Princeton in the 19th century through rationalism. That inerrancy is not an old doctrine of the church. Yeah. So that sort of sweeps the day at Fuller Seminary. The board is confused. There are some significant people on the board, moneyed people, people like the Weyerhaeuser family, and people like that. Uh, they're putting pressure on the school because. They said, we come here and you tell us how evangelical you are and how faithful you are. We go back to our churches and our constituency and all we hear is that Fuller's compromising. We're trying to figure out what's the real story. David Hubbard was the president at the time and his stated vision was to convert liberalism back to evangelicalism. But to try to do that with a weak view of inerrancy would be an impossible task. So they invited Ian Hay. Do you remember that from the Africa Inland Mission? Uh, myself and Ken Kunzer. I don't know why I got in the triumvirate, 
to speak to the faculty and the board on our view of Fuller Seminary mm-hmm. in Pasadena at the school. I want to stay there for just a moment, John. I'm going to turn to, uh, to Ligon as a seminary president, seminary president here. Up until 1972, the Confession of Faith of the Fuller Theological Seminary read on Scripture, quote, the books which form the canon of the Old and New Testaments as originally given are plenarily inspired and free from all error in the whole and in the part. These books constitute the written word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. 1972, at the uh, instigation of the faculty, the board changed that confession to read, quote, Scripture is an essential part and trustworthy record of this divine self-disclosure. All the books of the Old and New Testaments given by divine inspiration are the written word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. They are to be interpreted according to their context and purpose in reverent obedience to the Lord who speaks through them in living power, end quote. What's the difference between those two statements? Notice the shift to try and use infallible as making a claim that is less than inerrant. The first statement affirms plenary verbal inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, authority. The second one dials that back down. Suddenly it's a record of the revelation and it's infallible. Now, that's an illegitimate use of infallible in the first place. If you pick up your Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find out that infallible is a synonym for inerrancy. When it came into the language, it means exactly what we mean by inerrancy. So when you say infallible, you're not making a lesser claim for the Bible than inerrant. In fact, John Frame argues you're actually claiming more when you use infallible, and it's somewhat persuasive when he says that. So, but you will hear people use infallible as a substitute for inerrancy, as if it is not as comprehensive a claim for the total truthfulness of Scripture. That's inaccurate. But what what clearly was being done here was a step back away from an affirmation of biblical inerrancy. The reason I wanted to bring it up that way is because when John talks about Jack Rogers, a decade later, had the confession not been changed so explicitly, which at least they were honest to do. And I want to give them credit for the honesty in changing the confession rather than just blinking at those who, uh, who didn't mean it and signed it. Th- that, that, that issue would have been closed long before the, that book could have been written. Right. But it, it wasn't. And that book is the authority and interpretation of Scripture. And sure. as, as Mark said, it's generally identified as the Rogers and McKim proposal. And you received, as a part of your giveaway, a book that was written by John Woodbridge at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School that devastates that particular thesis. You need to read that volume. It's still worthwhile reading to this day. I'm very glad that it was given out. You know, the, the irony of it all is that Fuller lost the battle for the Bible. And, and they were the source of the book in Linzel's day. It's a, an issue not here of just trying to point to an institution, but to point to the principles of, uh, of, of what have, has led to the, uh, and the historical events that have led to the debate as, as we know it now. I, I want to turn to Kevin and, and just ask you explicitly, is the doctrine of inerrancy directly dependent upon the verbal plenary understanding of inspiration? And before you answer it, let me turn it around. If you do affirm the verbal plenary understanding of, informa- of uh, inspiration, as this uh, confession once did, would you not logically also affirm the inerrancy of Scripture? I like he gives me the questions that already have the answer stated in them, <laughs> just to be sure. And just for the record, I wasn't alive for any of these things that they were talking about, so it wasn't my fault. <laughs> so... Man, where, what were you guys doing? <laughs> oh, thank you for all the... Waiting for you. No, no, no. <laughs> well, of course, that you, you shouldn't be able to have one consistently without the other. If you have verbal, God speaking, plenary, all of it, revelation, then what we have in this book is God speaking to us and is... As all, all these guys know even better than I do, and most of you would have heard about probably in your seminary education, we, we want to be uh, wary of any kind of 
Bardian neo-Orthodox understanding of inspiration, which at first can sound very spiritual. Look, this contains the word of God, or this becomes to you God's word when you preach it. And oh, wow, that's so... But you see all of that kind of neo-Orthodox language puts this one step removed from the Word of God, which is what Ligon was so astutely pointing to in that language. It's now become a record of God's revelation. So it contains what God has revealed to man rather than this is God's revelation. So if this is verbal plenary inspiration, God speaking to us, then it must have the same truthfulness and trustworthiness that God himself has. Let God be true and every man a liar. So we cannot budge on the doctrine of inerrancy or on our doctrine of Scripture without impugning the very character of God. That's why the stakes are so high. John, when you were uh, the new pastor at Grace Community Church, 1969, when you surveyed the evangelical landscape, when you were ministering here in Southern California, did, did you expect this to be one of the defining battles of your generation? Um, outside the church, outside the true church, I did, I think. Um, I was exposed in seminary to B.B. Warfield's treatment of the inspiration and authority of Scripture, so I knew that liberalism was out there making an assault on it. It was like a lot of things. I, I knew they were out there outside the true church, but I think the shock for me was when they all of a sudden showed up inside the confessing evangelical world, the confessing people who believed the gospel, the confessing people who believed the Bible, but were equivocating and equivocating on all kinds of issues. Um, I, I just That's been the, the biggest shock of my whole life is fighting all these wars inside the professing church. Um, I think seminary... Uh, it taught me to expect that. I mean, we all read higher critical theory. We all had to be able to answer that. We were, we were interacting with the dead Germans that nobody would know ever lived if we didn't raise them from the dead all the time. And so we... So we, we knew we had to argue with yeah, that. Yeah, just keep a straight face. Joe. Yeah. Just, <laughs> some people actually get a Ph.D. for resurrecting dead Germans. Um, He's Scottish, not mine. I'm not <laughs> but anyway, so I think, um, I think the shock for me was to see that going on. And the, ne- the nearest um, expression of that was Fuller Seminary because they're right on our doorstep. And um, very early in the ministry, Grace Community Church and Fuller Seminary became like light and darkness. There was a period of time, this would probably surprise you, when Peter Wagner used to bring all the students in the School of Church Growth from Fuller to Grace Community Church to experience a growing church. And um, this was when Peter hadn't, you know, jumped off the cliff. Um, And he was still in the church growth aspect of his journey. And then I got a call from him one day and, and said, we're not bringing them anymore. And the curtain went down. And I remember that conversation very, very well. He said it confuses our students. Your, your, your church experience, conversations with you are very confusing to the students. Uh, he, was, he was tampering with biblical authority on another level, not, not on a liberal level, but on a pragmatic level. And the Bible was, was coming to mean less and less to him at all, not because of some intellectual theory or some rational argument, but it just didn't fit the the mystical model that was developing, the pragmatic model. So uh, we've watched that alienation continue and continue and continue. So here we are, uh, ostensibly an evangelical church, with virtually through the years since the very earliest years, absolutely no relationship to that institution. Mark, you went as an undergraduate to Duke University. You had recently been an agnostic. You were then a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to be a faithful believer. When did you become an inerrantist? In other words, when did the inerrancy of Scripture become pressed upon you as, uh, as what would be very necessary to your theological self-understanding? I think probably that first year at Duke. Uh, I think I assumed it. I think when you come to Christ, you assume the Bible's true. So I think you, you just walk in with that assumption. And I remember my first weekend at Duke, I shared with my religion department advisor all the things the Lord had been doing in my life that summer. 
I didn't really have a category of liberals. I knew there were unbelievers and believers. I, you know, that's all there was. And so um, I later, when I told a friend that, a Christian undergrad friend, that I just had this great time sharing with my religion department advisor all the things the Lord had been doing in my life that summer, they said, you know she's a Jewish atheist. I didn't know. I mean, she was just very, you know, nice to me. And, you know, who knows what I must have sounded like to her, some nutcase from Kentucky, you know. Um, but because of the things that I was assigned to read, I immediately had to think, okay, uh, all of the historical constructions, leave, leave the Old Testament alone. Even in the New Testament, all the historical constructions I see just aren't true. And they immediately drove me to read Donald Guthrie's introduction to the New Testament, R.K. Harrison's introduction to the Old Testament. You know, all these things that were not assigned. But I think, I think Paul Pressler had a similar experience at Princeton. You know, it's, it's when you're put in a, an experience early on in a school that doesn't believe you had this at Furman, you, you had this at Southern. I had this. You have it in your denomination. Um, you know, I, I think we, we're pressed to have to define these things. But w- one thing I want to pick up on, on that comment that John was making about Peter Wagner not being a, an intellectual opponent necessarily, I think for most of the men sitting in this room, the, the danger will come as much from language about evangelism yeah. and mission. That's right. That's where liberalism where comes came, from. That's where it came and from. please don't misunderstand. All these brothers here share the faith. We, we all believe in evangelism and missions. But in, again and again, Edinburgh 1910, the, the world missionary movement, it's, it's, it's if we can get us to agree on our common mission, we don't have to worry about the doctrine that divides. That's right. And that's how you, you often shift over into like an e, unbelief in like the Like ECT. Like ECT would be a more recent example of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ligon, you grew up in a Presbyterian home, and uh, you are now chancellor of a reform seminary. You were the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in America. That denomination wouldn't exist but for the question of inerrancy. And I think it's important that people know the story. When they, a lot of folks, when they hear the word Presbyterian, they think of one denomination, but that's anything but. Right. And that's a story that needs to be told. Uh, I grew up in Greenville County, South Carolina, uh, not but a few blocks from where Southern Baptist Theological Seminary once was. Amen. (laughs) So close and yet so far. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Southern Presbyterianism was going through a theological decline. Neo-Orthodoxy had uh, influenced the agencies and the leading pastors of that denomination. The seminaries of the denomination were not sound. You wouldn't have found professors except for one in any of the Southern Presbyterian seminaries in those days that believed in biblical inerrancy, which is why so many Presbyterian ministers of those times uh, went to dispensational institutions like Dallas for their education because they wanted to go someplace that believed in inerrancy. And uh, so I'm being reared in this context in the 1960s and 70s because my mother is a graduate of the church music school at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and has been on the music faculty at Furman. I'm watching what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. I see the beginnings of the conservative resurgence. I'm profoundly thankful that there are people that are standing up for the authority of Scripture. I recognize the same thing going on in the Southern Presbyterian world. My father is an elder, is working to try and bring the Southern Presbyterian Church back to a high view of God and a high view of Scripture. Eventually, it's apparent that that is not going to work, and the Presbyterian Church in America in 1973 comes out of the Presbyterian Church U.S., the, what, what used to be called the Old Southern Presbyterian Church, on the issue of inerrancy, the Westminster Confession of Faith, obedience to the Great Commission, uh, the same kinds of things that were going on in Southern Baptist life. You won. You won your seminaries back. We lost our denomination and our seminaries, but we were prepared to stand with the Word of God, even if it meant, even if it meant, if, if it meant walking away, and we did. And I think the issue is we, we want everyone to know that thus you defined inerrancy within the confession of faith of the PCA and within your requirement of those who would be ordained within your denomination. That's exactly right. And every minister of the Presbyterian Church in America must vow to believe biblical inerrancy. It's in our ministerial ordination vows. Now, Kevin, you're in a very different Reformed denomination. 
And uh, there's a very important story to be told there as well. And it may be one that's even less known uh, among the pastors who are here. So it'd be helpful if you told that story. So I, I was born and raised uh, in the Reformed Church in America, who for many years, our most famous church was just down Crystal the road. Crystal Cathedral. The Crystal Cathedral. <laughs> uh, a cautionary tale. And, uh, you know, a, a, a wonderful history. Uh, the The oldest Protestant denomination in the country with a continuous ministry back to the 1620s in New Amsterdam. And again, it happened in the 60s that there was a formal switch in the language to move away from, and I don't know if the word inerrancy was in it, but it was that idea that then switched to the Bible is truthful in all that it intends to teach for faith and practice. So it's the sort of thing that, that goes by and you want to say, well, I do agree that the Bible is true and all that it intends to teach for faith and practice, but it's what it was not saying by making a decision to now say that instead of what it used to say. Uh, a, a softer form of subscription and then this, this much watered-down version so that now, uh, I don't think in any of... We have two seminaries. I don't think there would be anyone in any of those seminaries that would affirm inerrancy and at times, people who have gone through ordination through other means have been suspect for being a part of those who, in, in fact, there was one prominent person who was looking askance at people who were too influenced by John MacArthur or John Piper or these, these neo-reform folks and held to complementarianism and inerrancy. And so, though I went to one of our denominational colleges and was thankful for many things about it, I too had to cut my teeth on, I remember we had to learn, read books about the Jesus Seminar, and we had to learn all of the, the liberal theologians and neo-orthodox theologians when it came to scripture, and, and it caused something of a, of a crisis of faith. How do, I, how do I know that the Bible is true? And that's what, similar to you guys, I, I found B.B. Warfield, Inspiration Authority of Scripture, it wasn't being a to me, I said, I need to read this. I found books about the canon of Scripture to try to answer some of these questions and determine what exactly is true about the Bible. Because I knew that if, if this gets wobbly, everything else is a house of cards. Kevin, tell them, tell them who, who anchored you in, in the Word of God. My parents? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, when, when I went to... When I went to college and started hearing things from people who are smarter than me, and this is the, the, the danger of going to a Christian school because you got the professors, they go to church, they're really nice, they, they tell you about their church experience, and they're telling you something different from what you grew up with. Better to go to a university. Um, you know, our students who go to Michigan State, they don't expect anything that they tell them about the Bible is going to be true. It, <laughs> It's just clearer that way. So when I was hearing these things, I really had to wrestle with why is this different from what I heard growing up in church? And what anchored me was this thought, I, this isn't what my parents would believe. And it, it just gave me pause. And, and those parents out there, just you, you don't know. Your teenage kids are not going to come and tell you, I'm heading off to college. I just want you to know how much you've anchored me in the truth. They're not going to say that. They're going to be on their phone when you're crying and they go off to school and, what? You know. <laughs> Are you crying, Mom? But things stick with you and things that you just saw, habits in your, in your parents and in your church are hard to shake off. And I, I by God's grace, just knew I, I should not shake that off. And so I ran to figure out a better way to try to understand these questions. Really helpful. John, when the battle for the Bible kind of exploded in the evangelical world in 1976, uh, what did you think? Uh, where did you think that the discussion would go? Um, was the ICBI, the Chicago Statement, was, was that at all on the horizon when you were thinking about this? Uh, oh, when I first saw the book, of course, I, I devoured it. And I, I honestly, thinking back, if I remember correctly, again, saw it in, in, as an answer to people outside the church, outside the true church. Um, 
it didn't take long to, to become evident to me, though, that th- this had infiltrated the church. And uh, I think Harold Lenzel must have known that. That, that was a very unique book, Al. You, you, you may remember some of the history of that book. Um, it, it hit the top of the bestseller list, and it was a theological book. And that just didn't happen. I don't know that any theological book has done that since. So it, 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 it came at a critical, critical time. Uh, and already, I think those, uh, th- those realities had moved into the church. And it was a little alien to me because it wasn't in here. It wasn't a Grace Community Church. But I, I, had, I had already begun to feel that coming from Fuller Seminary, that we can view Scripture, and I knew it was, was around. Uh, and it didn't take long before we were all very much aware that this book was speaking volumes and people were reacting. And it was in the, the thrust of that kind of thing a few years later that the meeting over there uh, was held because by then Fuller had called all kinds of things into question. Marco, you were growing up. You grew up in kind of a stereotypical Southern Baptist, First Baptist Church in Madisonville, Kentucky. Did you ever hear the inerrancy of Scripture explicitly taught? And, and did you ever hear the suggestion that Scripture had any error whatsoever? I, I think uh, no to both those questions. Uh, this, the Scriptures were taught. I wasn't paying attention because I wasn't a Christian. I was just coming along with my family when I was a you know, single-digit child, and then I was gone. Uh, and then I came back as a teenager, came to Christ was well taught there, but I was taught in the middle of a believing community with the Bible always being treated as true. But that's why I think I went to Duke kind of unarmed. I was armed in the most important way with the truth of Scripture. But I found Harold Lenzel's book a few years later after it was published <clears throat> when I'm an undergrad. The thing that first really woke me up to the problem, not just in the Duke Religion Department with, you know, theological liberals, but inside, conser- I was going to a, an old PCUS church at the time uh, that was evangelical, inerrantist, Um, But I knew that there was a professor at Southern Seminary who was coming out with a new systematic theology. And I was getting excited, like, this is going to be helped. Because I've read R.K. Harrison, you know, he's an Anglican in Canada. And I've read Donald Guthrie, you know, and now the Southern Baptists are going to come to help. And it was uh, Dale Moody's The Word of Truth. And uh, I just had no idea what I was in for. So I excitedly bought a copy as soon as it came, came out. I was driving home from Duke to back to Kentucky, drove right through Nashville, went to the main bookstore there of the Sunday School Board, bought the book, uh, devoured it, and was shocked. I mean, the, the, the fundamentalists who were objecting to what was going on in the seminaries didn't know the half of it, if this thing was true. I mean, he was mocking the idea of a bodily resurrection or of substitutionary atonement. And I'm looking on the back and thinking, this guy teaches at Southern Seminary, so I'm thinking of all the old people at my church who've been given money to pay this salary, you know, since Moses was a kid. And, and I'm thinking, and this is what since they're Since Moses paying. was a Southern Baptist. <laughs> no, I do think he was more of the older covenant. But anyway, uh, I, I, I think that there was a sense of betrayal, yeah. you know, that I, I just couldn't believe that this was that they could in good conscience take this money and teach this stuff. Well, imagine what it was like for Dale Moody to be your theology professor, as he was mine. And uh, to speak of Dale Moody as I must, as someone who uh, was so gracious to me and so engaging in the classroom, I came to inerrancy because basically I was taught it as a child. And because Were you when taught I, it explicitly? Yes. Yes, but that was, it was a different context in, in Fort Lauderdale, yes. Uh, not in my single digits, as you put it, but in the double digits, yes, because the issue had exploded. D. James Kennedy. Jim Kennedy was so central in, in, uh, in, in pressing that forward. And Francis Schaeffer, who, uh, who had such a massive influence on me when I had an apologetic crisis as a teenager. So then I arrived at Southern Seminary, and uh, Dale Moody was one of my teachers. And I did my very best to find a way to make peace with what he was saying and the Scripture. I mean, I, I, you know... Uh, these people just, just, cared just for me greatly. Dale Moody is not D.L. Moody. Yes, thank you. If we're confusing anybody, D.L. Moody was a God-fearing evangelist in the late 19th century. Dale Moody was a, I leave to him his fear of God, but I mean, he was a professor at Southern Seminary in the 20th century. No relation whatsoever. I'm so sorry. I just realized that probably a lot of people were confused there. Yeah. I never confuse the two, I can tell you that. Um, 
but that that wasn't even what was mostly being taught when I was a student, because Dale Moody was already a very old man. And uh, by the time I, uh, I got there, there was a professor who was actually, uh, at one point, on the Jesus Seminar. And, uh, and, and so it had moved light years beyond where it was. And uh, no, folks here need to know that the inerrancy battle in the Southern Baptist Convention and the, 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 the battle that was won for inerrancy that, that made the opportunity for the recovery of Southern Seminary and the institutions of the SBC was driven by people who were willing to put their lives on the line to define the issue. But it was made possible by God's grace by laymen and laywomen who sacrificially gave up their time and slept in their cars because they couldn't afford hotel rooms to go into a convention hall and vote for the inerrancy of Scripture because, so far as they were concerned, that was the most important issue for the entire future of the denomination. And as one of them said... If my grandchildren are going to get taught the Bible, I'm going to have to do whatever it takes to make certain it starts right here. And uh, so it's just with great humility. I just want to, I want folks to know that this was something that when Harold Lenzel wrote the book, he did not expect Southern Baptists to recover the authority and trustworthiness of, of the scripture, much less that in the year 2000, the Southern Baptist Convention would write inerrancy into its confession of faith. A more conservative confession of faith. Where, it, where else is there a denomination that survives its, denomin- its confession of faith in a more conservative direction? But uh, that's not an arrogant statement of pride. It's a humbling statement of necessity. But, uh, you know, we are arriving at a conversation. And so I, I became president of Southern Seminary. When I was 33. I'm now 55. You can do the math. The issues are back, Ligon. Now, they're not back on my campus. I'm so thankful for that. It's nailed down tight. And that's one of the great things uh, that, that does come as one of the, the effects of this kind of civil war in a denomination. The people who are left know what was bought at so high a price. But I look out at evangelicalism and I see all the old issues coming right back. Very much so. And, uh, and by the way, I had the same uh, feeling that you described, John feeling this thing's nailed down. I I can remember as a seminary student in the middle of the 1980s, having read the products of ICBI, and I thought to myself, I think this is handled for another 50 years. Um, And and, and it's come back quicker than I thought. I didn't expect it to stay settled for the very reasons that you and Mark talked about at the beginning of our conversation. And even when you look at the Athanasius and Arius uh, engagement that you referenced in the Council of Nicaea, that, that was really the beginning of the second stage of the Arian country. It went on, uh, controversy. It went on for another 50 years after the Council of Nicaea. So and I, lives on today. It does. And I, so I expected there to be those issues, but not as quickly and, and not as pervasively. And I think a lot of that is the cultural shift that we've gone through. Uh, Al, in your work on this, and, and you've written about this a little bit in the volume that you did on those, on those five views, you've pointed out that the kinds of arguments against the Bible that we're facing today are a little bit different than we were hearing in the 1970s, so that people are now making moral judgments about the ethics of the Bible being below their standards, which the liberals of the 19th century would never have said. They wanted to get rid of the supernaturalism and hold on to the ethics, but now we've got a culture around us that's looking down on the ethics of the Bible, and they're calling the Bible into question on a moral basis and then on a theological basis as well. And I think that's impacting evangelicalism. Well, you know, in that project where I was asked to defend the classical view of inerrancy, um, the three test cases included a case where it was historicity, uh, a case where there was supposedly an internal conflict, and a case in which there was a moral judgment made on Scripture. And you're right, that third one would not have appeared uh, even, I think, in the 1970s in the same way. I want to turn to Kevin. Kevin... And I'm going to turn to everyone else on the, on the panel and ask the same question so you get kind of a heads up here. Where are the hot spots right now? I mean, for a pastor, for a preacher, where are the hot spots? Where, where are the landmines that we just need to name where inerrancy is, uh, is the definitional issue, whether it's acknowledged or not? Uh, I can think of three, three things. One, the sufficiency of Scripture. So if you think sufficiency, clarity, authority, necessity, that acronym, SCAN, sort of the, the four attributes of Scripture. Inerrancy has to do a lot with the authority. Okay, we have the authority of Scripture. 
But uh, sufficiency and clarity would be two other uh, pressure points. And, and it gets to what John was saying about pragmatism. That's really an assault on the sufficiency of Scripture. Does the Bible tell you what you need to know to, to run your church? It doesn't tell you everything you need to know about everything you might want to know about, how to change the oil in your car. I don't know how to do that at all. Uh, but it tells you what you need to know for ministry. Is the Word of God sufficient to do the work of God? That's the question, and that's what pastors have to deal with. As, the, as it, Prayer and the Word, the Word and prayer. If you can grow a church, if you can do a church apart from those two things, and you can, but you're not, you're not doing Christ's church. So the sufficiency and then the clarity, what Christian Smith wrote about uh, unhelpfully, but he does have a way of turning a phrase. He called it pervasive interpretive pluralism. This is what you find as pastors. People come up to you. Mark talked about right, all, all the translations. People say, well, look, there's all these five views of this and four views of that and three views. You know, Christians can't agree on anything. So how am I really to know? And there's a lot of smart people out there, and there's PhDs who can't agree on this. Look, if we're going to hold up, you know, throw up our hands because PhDs can't agree on something... <laughs> You won't know anything about anything in all the corpus of human knowledge because that's, that's a human fallibility problem, not a word of God infallibility problem. And then the, the issue that I'm sure we're all aware of is the issue of human sexuality because people who in our churches who will affirm all of the principial things that we're saying here will come to this issue and want to find a way to get around what the Bible says. It isn't that the other side in this argument really has uh, powerful arguments. The, the, the only arguments that can, they really can marshal are arguments to, to try to say, well, the Bible doesn't really say what it actually seems to be saying. And so when you find a way to do that, you, you've, you've set aside the locus of authority from Scripture. As I heard Carl Truman say one time, it's not that um, we're losing the argument. It's that no arguments are being made, and therefore we're losing. All right, so Lee, I'm going to interrupt myself for just a minute and, and ask you a very blunt question. Does the Roman Catholic Church teach the inerrancy of Scripture? Uh, Roman Catholics at the time of the Reformation certainly would have accepted the inerrancy of Scripture, but they would have had a different view of, of, biblical, of, um, of uh, religious authority. They would have wanted to add alongside of uh, an inerrant Bible uh, an authoritative magisterium and tradition. And so the Protestant engagement with Roman Catholicism in, in the 16th century especially issue, deals with the issue of authority, uh, not so much having to refute bad uh, views of the Bible that were being purported. Yeah, the reason I ask is because uh, in a real sense, I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. And the Roman Catholic Church still, according to its official statements, affirms the inerrancy of Scripture. But then it goes on to say, as rightly interpreted by the magisterial authority of the church. Um, so in, in one sense, uh, inerrancy is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. True. And Carl Truman brilliantly made that point in his lecture on inerrancy and the reformers. And I, I think if I were going to add, I'd agree with everything that Kevin just said. And by the way, his book, Taking God at His Word, That's right. yeah, uh, will outline. I require my seminary students in the Doctrine of Stu uh, Scripture course to read that book. And they, they love that scan outline because they know they're going to hear it from me in the oral examination. And uh, it, it, so everything he said, yes. I, I would add two two more things to that. One would be, and it's already been echoed here, pragmatism is our big problem on this. There, there will be a small, small wedge of left-leaning evangelical academics that will be able to make hay undermining scriptural authority because they're speaking into a largely pragmatic evangelical audience. That's our problem. Secondly, what Carl said, what Ian Hamilton said, Remember, every time you meet a doctrine of Scripture, you are meeting a doctrine of God. Underneath every doctrine of Scripture is a doctrine of God. And you show me a low view of Scripture, I'll show you a low view of God behind it. So theology matters. And so the pragmatism of evangelicalism leaves it vulnerable to bad theological arguments because it doesn't think that theology matters. So part of this is having a robust, historic, biblical, faithful theology and doctrine of God. Mark, what do you see as the, the crucial 
areas of urgent debate and defense. MBP. This is to pastors. Membership, books, and preaching. Membership. Whoever has the authority to take members into your church or see members out, those people need to understand that they need to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. So if you're in a Baptist church like we are, that means all of the members need to affirm inerrancy. Because they are the ones who vote on people coming into membership and putting them out of membership. If you're in an elder rule church, like John kind of is, and like Lig kind of is, and like Kevin really is, I think. Um, <laughs> those brothers better make sure all your elders believe in inerrancy. Um, because that's the, that, that's the camel's nose. If, if you let people in who have a vote on who can comprise the membership of your church who do not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible or don't think you need to, then you, you, you just might as well give the keys to the build, uh, building way right then. I mean, that's just, that's it. So membership matters on this point. Second thing, books. Watch what books you're selling at your church. Watch what books you recommend. Make sure you have good defenses of, of, of inerrancy, like, like Kevin's book. Uh, on your church bookstall uh, or in your church bookstore or that you're recommending them or giving them away. So that's books. Uh, do not lightly give away books that have authors that will confuse them on this topic. I don't care how good they are on other things. You can privately suggest those to people who you think are mature enough to, to pick them out, but do not broadly suggest Christian books by people who do not believe the Bible's inerrant. It will confuse too many sheep. And number three, in terms of preaching... Uh, in your own preaching, take, take time to defend the authority of the Bible as you're walking through. Think through, think how a non-Christian or an antagonist hears what you would say. Uh, I think in all four of these men's preaching, I regularly hear that note. Um, be, be mindful of the historical claims, the ethical claims. If you're preaching through Joshua, and I, let me encourage you, go preach through Joshua. And take head on the idea that there is a genocidal atrocity suggested there. You know, because, because we need to understand that morally and ethically. And we need to be clear in defending that the Bible records a good God. And his actions are good and right. And we have nothing to be ashamed of in any way. Perish the thought in Scripture. And preachers are the front line of the sheep understanding that. Mm. John. You know, there's certainly not much to add to that. Um... I, I would, uh, this might be expected, but I would say this. The scripture itself is its own best defense. Nothing validates the inerrancy of scripture like the scripture carefully taught. I look at Bible exposition. Every sermon I preach is an argument for what is revealed in the text. It is coherent, it is reasonable, it is uniform, it is consistent. Analogia Scriptura, you can trace it everywhere because of the sole authorship. My fear is that an inerrant Bible doesn't matter that much if you're not an expositor. Because you can just pluck this up and pull this out of here and skim lightly across the top of the surface of the Bible and suck up whatever attaches to your outline. But every really, really faithful handling of the Word of God is an argument out of a text. It is a, it is a divine argument. And, the, and, you know, when you do this for nearly 50 years, nobody around here is questioning the veracity of Scripture. Nobody is questioning the integrity of the text or its inerrancy because you, you just continually... You just can continually build this massive exposure to this divine coherency and this divine reason and these powerful arguments that are made through the text of Scripture from the very mind of God. And it carries such force in and of itself uh, so that I'm not the convincer. Scripture is the convincer. And I, I that that's... That's at the heart of everything why I advocate expository preaching. Not because people need to, need to kind of know their Bible, but because you can't see the real revelation of God in any other way. I wanted to come back to what Ligon mentioned because it was so central in, uh, in, in the challenge I faced in that Zondervan project. I think one of the things I don't share with you is this. We've got to decide what we're willing to be called. And uh, at uh, Forbes magazine about a week ago, I was specifically singled out because of my beliefs on creation. 
in Genesis 1 and 2 as being, quote, mired in anti-intellectualism, end quote. Did the author know you? <laughs> he knew what I believed about Genesis 1 and 2, and that was quite sufficient. And uh, so I actually have uh, told many people that, you know, that, that doesn't worry me. Uh, someone coming from that worldview saying I'm mired in anti-intellectualism, uh, I'll admit there's a part of me that wants to call him up, but the other part of me says, he's mired in anti-intellectualism. Um, <laughs> But we have to decide what we're willing to be called. And, and, and for the, the better part of the last 250 years, if you affirm propositional revelation, you affirm, you affirm verbal plenary inspiration, you affirm the inerrancy of Scripture, you, you've had to be prepared to be called anti-intellectual or intellectually uh, deficient in some way. But now there's more. You also now have to be willing to be called immoral. Mm-hmm. Because the argument against us now is that uh, the, the clear teachings of Scripture, and, and Kevin got to this, that the other side is giving up trying to argue the Bible doesn't say what it says because that, that is just such a, uh, a prima facie, just a losing strategy. It just loses on its face. It, anyone can read the text and tell what it says. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, a late uh, Presbyterian uh, professor at a, at a liberal institution, uh, PCUSA, she said, if the Bible's clear about anything, it's clear about God's pattern of sexuality. Uh, it's not that it's not clear, it's abundantly clear. But we're now accused not only of being anti-intellectual and being intellectually deficient, we're now being charged of being morally deficient. And I just want to warn you, if you are afraid to be called that by the secular world, then you'll abandon not only the inerrancy of Scripture, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel itself, in naming sin as sin, makes very clear that by the modern standards of the, uh, of the political and sexual revolutionaries, uh, the gospel itself is immoral in their eyes. So together every once in a while, we need to gather and, and look each other in the eye and say, we're willing to bear this scandal uh, because it's necessary uh, for the sake of the church. I need to ask an embarrassing question. What time does this session end? That's what I thought. That means the session now ends. <laughs> and I want to turn to our host and ask Dr. John MacArthur to lead us in a closing word of prayer. Thank you. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for the clarity of this conversation, the expression of biblical conviction so unwavering, uh, so passionate. Thank you for the leadership of these men. Um, thank you that uh, they are magnets to attract other faithful men, that they have blazed a trail of leadership in your church and influence and impact. Bless them, encourage their hearts, fill their ministries with fruitfulness and joy. Bless their families, their children. And Lord, I, I pray that you'll take all of the men who are here and listening to this as well and and uh, continue to build into them the same convictions that marked these men and raise up uh, an entire generation of those committed to your word so that it can be passed on to the generation that is in our hands to care for and shepherd. Bless the rest of our conference together. We give you praise for such a privilege in the Savior's name. Amen.